What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, what's going on, man? Not too much. New year. Got some. I know. Do you have any resolutions? No, no, no. You're not no, that I don't kind of guy. So. I, no, I feel like what you, you mean to start the the uh, resolution and then by February it's kind of faded away yeah. in, into obscurity. Yeah. Nah. I uh, I like to think that I try to kind of set my goals along the way, but then again, I don't know how accurate that is either. But <laughs> so far, it's working out okay. If I was going to do anything, it would be I want to go to bed on time. Yeah. My whole life, I've I, not I been able to do it, and I'd like to be able to do that. You just is just being because you're busy or just you just busy. Can't I, sleep. I, I put it off, you know. I dilly dally and just do nonsense and. Then next thing you know, I'm getting five or six hours of sleep, and that's just not a good way to live. So I need to get to bed on time. Yeah, that's what I've heard anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've received multiple warnings about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wouldn't know so, anything about that. <clears throat> um, but uh, yeah, I don't think I've told you this yet, so I'll uh, announce this on the podcast too. But um, not that it's an announcement, but it's something cool that I found out. Um, I got offered to, to teach a block of the pharmacology, pharmacotherapy section for a PE school in Oregon. In no Portland, way. Oregon. What? Yeah. Yeah. And, so you're uh, moving to Oregon. I'm moving to, no, <laughs> no. Um, and they're letting me do it virtual. And since they're three hours behind us, that actually helps me out because I can start teaching after clinic and for them, it's just like the afternoon, huh. but I'm going to do like one, one day live, but virtual and then one day recorded like asynchronous. No way. And, uh, yeah. So that's super cool. Pretty, uh, pretty cool. Did, uh, um, what they just reached out to you randomly or were you looking for it? Honestly, man, it was, it was sort of like one of those classic head hunting situations. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the, uh, the director of the program is, she used to be at the PA school that I teach at in Charleston I see. and she got a chance to be the director of this program there uh, like two years ago and so she left and she just hit me up randomly and apparently they're having a hard time getting any kind of traction with uh, any kind of like traction with pharmacology in general and have had a hard time keeping people in place so I was like yeah I'll give that a try very cool well you know so, I mean that's we'll the see. great thing about virtual learning you can get the best and brightest minds no matter where they are in the country exactly you know? you're not limited yeah. to and whoever it, wants to live in Portland Oregon whoever would want to do that and, and no and, offense and to what's any insane of our listeners in Oregon yeah yeah no and, and what's insane about that is you could you could, you could go with anybody in, in the country or world and, and you got me out there <laughs> teaching this is this is insanity you're surely but, you're not no, going to be you know at both places right well oh my gosh Mike no, no, because listen, here's the thing. Wait a minute, were we just talking how... about like getting enough sleep? Wasn't that what we were just talking about? Well, you, you were talking about that. That wasn't my resolution. <laughs> that was my 2023 resolution, and that year's over. Oh, man. So, no, but but because it's every other week, it is a short block. It's only like 11, technically nine weeks of actual teaching, and I don't ta- start teaching again at the PA school in Charleston until like mid-February. So there's only like a very short overlap so it's mm. it, it won't be as, as bad as it sounds. Plus, I already have all the material made, so that's kind of nice. With your luck, that uh, overlap will uh, concur with when you have a newborn. You know what I'm saying? I, I honestly, I hope it does, because <laughs> why not? You're going to be awake anyway. Bring, but yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly. I told Jen the same thing. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I'll be awake anyway having to feed the baby, so what? Well, what, congrats. Make some slides. That's super cool. Thanks. That, yeah, yeah I, I imagine that'll be a lot of more stress, but that's super cool. No, yeah, I, I really I wouldn't have taken it if it was going to be a lot more work. But since the it's like cardiology, pulmonology, like stuff like that that I have plenty of material already made for, right. 
So, yeah, I was like, eh, let's give this a try. Okay. If it's too much, then Very we won't good. make that mistake again. Very good. But, uh, and, and, dude, I see that I took the uh, CDCES again. Oh, did you? Yeah, because they wanted me to do a hundred, like hundred or hundred and twenty hours of continuing education yeah. credit, and I was like, "No, I'm not doing that. Let's take the test again." Mine expires, and, uh, and I think next year. So how was how was it? It, it well, so here's the thing. It, it actually, I, I procrastinated studying like I always do, and uh, when it's something that I have to study for anyway. And it, basically, I was taking the test, thinking this is the biggest joke I've ever scene i was like this flying through i took it like 30 minutes i feel like maybe not that fast but it was quick and uh and then i got my score and i like i passed but it wasn't like i got a perfect score right. by any means so i was like i was like what the heck did i put like i was very confused of what i missed so i think i you know i knew enough to obviously get through i've done diabetes a lot but i definitely got I felt too confident for my score. I'll put it that way. That's a funny. That's it, I, it's a funny exam, though. You know, I, I, it was it was yeah. it's troublesome. Just just because you know diabetes doesn't mean that exam is not going to be troublesome. You know. Yeah. Well, a lot of it's like all the the psychology yeah. models and all that nonsense. Yeah. So yeah. But anyways, so that's uh that's new in my world. Oh, very good. You've been but, busy. Uh, yeah. Just wanted to update everybody <laughs> for for uh, the first five minutes of podcast. Um, but uh, yeah. So today we are going to be doing another accredited episode, and this is a topic that I do not believe we've really covered at all uh, on the podcast. And uh, it's we're going to cover systemic lupus, um, and. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, right, Cole? We haven't covered this in any kind of detail, right? I don't think we've ever talked about it. Or, no, yeah, I'm pretty sure we didn't. I don't think we have. Somebody's going to correct me, but I don't think. This is one of the few that we really have not touched on in any significant way. <laughs> gotcha. Well, for those of you who are members of FreeCE.com, make sure that after you listen to this episode that you go to the FreeCE.com website and click on their Learn tab, and then you'll click on Podcast. Pick this podcast from the list of all of our accredited episodes, and once you are there, you'll be able to input the code or password uh, to the post-activity test. We'll give you that at some point in this episode, and uh, then you'll take a 10 multiple-choice question post-activity quiz, and if you pass that, you'll get your one hour of continuing education credit if you're a pharmacist or nurse. And if you are not a free CE member, definitely go check out their library of, of content. They have a lot of really good opportunities for, for learning, regardless of how, how you like to do that. They have live stuff. They have uh, monographs that you can read. They have lectures you can watch in your own time. They have live panel discussions and obviously the podcasts. So lots of good options. So pretty, I really appreciate them to, you know, for continuing to work with us. But all that being said, Cole, do you uh, want to kick things off? Yeah. Let's get going. So Mike mentioned systemic lupus erythematosus, which is like the full name, frequently abbreviated as SLE. But most of the time when people are talking about this, they're just going to say lupus. Um, so what is it? Because it, I don't know, if, you, if you're not in that world, it is kind of this thing that you hear about and you know it has to do with the immune system. But I don't know. I, I, I really, before I started working a little more closely with it, didn't have a, a great idea of what it kind of involved and what the treatment options were and how it presented and that sort of thing. So we'll go through all that. But it is an autoimmune disorder. Um, it's characterized by antibodies to nuclear and cytoplasmic antigens, multi-system inflammation, and it kind of has a relapsing and remitting course. We'll talk about flares, but um, patients will go through periods where they're not really <coughs> symptomatic and then other periods where they have kind of a flare of symptoms. Why does it happen? It's not exactly clear. There's a number of proposed mechanisms. 
Um, and it all comes down to, or a lot of it comes down to a buildup of something called immune complexes. So one proposed mechanism um, of autoantibody development revolves around the malfunction in the process of apoptosis, which leads to that. Um, it leads to the heightened to heightened cell death and disruption in immune tolerance. The redistribution of cellular antigens during the apoptosis period results in the display of plasma and nuclear antigens in the nucleosome form on the cell surface. Uh, it triggers improperly regulated lymphocytes to attack um, intracellular antigens that are usually safeguarded. And then ineffective removal of the apoptotic cell remnants um, causes a continuous presence of antigens, and that's what produces the immune complexes. And these things can build up and cause issues with inflammation. Um, and that's <laughs> a piece of, of what they think could be the issue. Yeah, and they, they also think that there's a role as far as like T-cell um, effectiveness. And, and for instance, they found that patients with lupus have um, statistically less interleukin IL-2. Um, so they, they secrete less th compared to patients that they've looked at that do not have lupus. Um, there's a, a defect that's been identified in signaling that seems to be linked to an increase in the calcium influx and uh possibly due to changes in, in the CD3 signaling subunits um, in, in basically T-cell uh, effector activity. So things like um, CD8 cytotoxicity, T-regulatory B-cell lymphocyte or helpers, and, uh, and you know things like that seem to be adversely affected in lupus patients. That, that effector activity just seems to be down-regulated or just not as pronounced. And there's other clear genetic um, sort of correlations that we found. And in, in fact, they've done certain like sibling and twin studies. Um, one study found that the sibling risk ratio was eightfold to 29-fold, depending on the resource um, that you're looking at, higher than that in the general population. And then they looked at, uh, um, in twins, there was um, SLE occurred in both twins and 30% of the time when they're identical and five to 10% in uh, non-identical twins or fraternal twins. So there's definitely a, a genetic component. I, I don't actually, the twin study kind of surprised me. I would have assumed it would have been a lot higher than that, but, um, but yeah, definitely a genetic component and, uh, you know, multifaceted as far as the pathophysiology. Yeah, and there's a number of other things that can increase your risk. For instance, um, it much more frequently happens in women, about 90% or more of cases um, of lupus occur in women. A lot of times it will begin around childbearing age. Um, it can happen in, um, in pediatric patients. It can happen in elderly patients, but most commonly around childbearing age. Pregnancy can be when lupus initially uh, presents or flares, so it can happen um, when a woman is pregnant. Recent data suggests that pregnancy outcomes are favorable and flares are infrequent among patients with inactive or stable mild to moderate lupus. Um, and any type of inflammatory condition or rheumatism type of condition can be challenging uh, during pregnancy. Um, a lot of the biologic medications and oral medications that are uh, DMARDs that are used are not um, safe in pregnancy, and we'll talk about some of the ones used for lupus as well. Um, uh, but fortunately, lupus as in, in and of itself has good uh, or at least favorable pregnancy outcomes. Yeah. Vitamin D deficiency has been implicated as well in the development of lupus. Um, there was a relatively small study that looked at about 436 patients who had a relative with lupus, um, but who did not have it themselves. 
it found that the combination of vitamin D deficiency and the carrying of a specific SNP, um, if you think back to your, um, what would that be, farm chem class, I suppose, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, was associated with a significantly increased risk of developing lupus. So vitamin D. Farm chem. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Uh, as far as the, I've thought about the concept. I just haven't thought about the class. Yeah, I kind of blocked it out. So they called it MedChem, and then they had a separate biochem class, I think, like, the year before me. Because Jen yeah. had, like, a different setup. But, yeah, then we got FarmChem. I was like, oh, cool, I got a whole new thing. Yeah, mine was different. Yeah, and, I, uh, I think I had your setup because I had FarmChem. But I did have a separate, like, starter biochem class my first semester. Yeah, I, remember, I think we did, too. Because you were, like, a biochem major, they, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. So I was not, and so I didn't know anything about biochem. Um, so I had, I mean, I did, it was fine, but I remember just having more difficulty than some of the others in my class who had a, at least a biochem class, you know, in undergrad, I did not. So, yeah, yeah. Biochem was the class itself. The couple of them I had in undergrad that was, was rough, but the ones in farm school, definitely, definitely rougher. So if that was your first one, uh, that you ever got exposed to, that would have been tough. Yeah. I made it but though. You, you you made it. Look at you now. Look at me now. You got a you got a podcast. And even, po- some people even <laughs> some people even listen to I'm it. Talking to the mic on a Friday night. But, but uh, there are some other potential triggers other than just the vitamin D deficiency and pregnancy and stuff like Cole was mentioning. Um, there's some random things that I feel like at least I wouldn't have typically thought about, but things like um, silica dust exposure um, as well as cigarette smoking um, have both been correlated with increasing the risk of developing SLE. Um, cigarette smoking is also associated with overall higher risk of flares. And so predominantly we, we see that as hep is uh, cutaneous flares. Um, and it also has been associated with increased risk of poor outcomes, you know, in regards to CKD and, and cardiovascular disease, um, in, in the same patient population. Um, estrogen. So patients who are postmenopausal, um, if they're on estrogen therapy, you know, hormone replacement therapy, it does appear at least to increase the risk of developing lupus. Um, photosensitivity is, is also a, a precipitant of you know, the skin disease itself um, that can be associated with lupus. Um, ultraviolet light stimulates the carotinocytes, which leads not only to the overexpression of the um, SNRNPs uh, or their cell surfaces, um, but it also is going to kind of be associated with that secretion of cytokines, the stimulation uh, or the, that simulate the increased um, autoantibody production, which kind of pushes the whole thing, then worsens the, the, the flare. Um, breastfeeding is, is also associated with a decreased risk. Um, so I, I don't know why I said also, but breastfeeding is associated with a decreased risk in developing lupus. Um, some other things, obviously, that can happen early on in childhood, so like low birth, ter- uh, birth weight, less than 2,500 grams, uh, preterm birth, one month or more uh, early uh, would also put a child at risk later in life. And then childhood exposure to agricultural pesticides. So that also has been been linked. But lots of different things that can precipitate a uh, initial and, and recurrent flare of lupus. Yeah, those pesticides are nasty. My, uh, yeah. I feel you like... Do you kid play with pesticides or no? I mean, you know, when you're a younger man, like, you... Like some. Right, you know, it's the occasional pesticide bath. No, yeah, I'm joking. that's good. But when you're a younger man, you don't worry about those things, and you have people kind of yapping about it, about how it's, uh, you know, you're getting cancer and all that, and you're like, ah, I'm fine. I don't know. I think a little I'm more about it I'm going to live now. forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting old. Um, yeah. 
yeah, so Mike mentioned estrogen. So kind of a classic presentation of lupus and somebody that you would think probably need to work them up is um, the triad of fever, joint pain, and rash in a woman of childbearing age. Um, and we'll kind of talk about it, but a sort of specific type of rash, a malar rash or a butterfly rash kind of on the face. Um, I encourage you to Google it and see what that looks like. Um, but it's it's not like particularly... I don't know. It almost looks like rosacea or somebody being flushed, but um, but it's characteristic of, of lupus in a lot of cases. Um, but they can present with a number of different manifestations. Um, uh, I mentioned fever, but fatigue, arthralgia, weight changes, um, myalgias, um, arthritis is very common, maybe not necessarily a presentation, depending on how long it's been going on, um, but um, a lot of patients with lupus have arthritis. Mike mentioned the UV light, so photosensitivity, um, and they really, patients with lupus really have to take precautions when it comes to the sun. Um, avoiding direct sun exposure just in every case is best um, because it can lead to breakouts of the cutaneous symptoms. So avoiding sun exposure or using um, pretty hefty um, sunscreen, I think SPF greater than 55 is what's recommended. Um so other manifestations, manifestations, discoid lupus, um, renal disease, we um, will hopefully touch on um, lupus nephritis later on, neuropsychiatric um, complications like seizure and psychosis are really the, the two primary ones, pulmonary disease, GI symptoms, um, secondary to lupus are uh, less common relate, being related to lupus as they are related to the medications that you have to take for it. Heart failure and pericarditis, also hematologic complications like leukopenia, lymphopenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia. So a whole number of things um, that are kind of a, a, a cascade, a multi-organ issue, um, as opposed to just treating the singular, uh, like with a lot of these inflammatory disorders, you're treating, you know, the pain associated with inflammation. People with lupus have that, but then they also have a whole host of other things that you have to um, look out for and manage. And not everyone has all of these. Um, it's a very um, heterogeneic, I suppose, is the word. So people present in all sorts of different ways. So you kind of have to just meet them where they are and see how their course progresses and address the issues as they come. Um, I, I think the, like you were saying, the classic like uh, malar rash is what everybody thinks of when they think of lupus. And I, I don't think if you're, if you're not working you know, with patients that have lupus directly i feel like a lot of times even healthcare professionals don't realize just the you know havoc that it can reef you know on on the whole body and on your know, various systems and organs so it's definitely uh you really got to look at the whole patient with this <laughs> i mean going through all that it's crazy so many things to think about did we ever establish that you watched house i think i'm sure the answer is no right i well i've seen some episodes i think we just talked about house not too long ago but i could be wrong did we yeah i've seen a few episodes i didn't watch it like religiously or anything well though. i guess when you have a medical podcast you bring up house but um one of his <laughs> common refrains like when they were doing their differential diagnoses as a you know five doctor group treating one patient um anytime somebody brought up lupus he would always <laughs> say it's never lupus um, so every time I hear about lupus, I always think of that, but I think there was one episode when it actually was lupus, but otherwise well, it was yeah, never lupus. Say, Cause I, I'm pretty sure there's people out there who it's been, the, the answer has been it's lupus before. <laughs> That's definitely the answer. <laughs> but because of that, I really thought 
as I was getting into pharmacy school, and I remember learning about lupus and thinking, it's never lupus. That was literally what was going through my mind. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> because of That's that. That's terrible. So, Missed lupus for the first the first four times you interacted with people with undiagnosed lupus. Right. No, I, no, it can't be that. That's too easy. Now House I literally work it. with patients with lupus. So Right. Yeah. Well, it, we all, we've all grown. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so when it comes to the guidelines, the the big 2019 update uh, between the European uh, League against rheumatism and the American College of Rheumatology published basically their their criteria and classification of SLA. Um, they said that in order to be classified as a or diagnosed with SLA, it would require an anti-nuclear antibody or ANA titer of at least one to eighty on a, a um, HEP2 cells uh, or an equivalent positive test at at least once. Um, if if it is present and that titer is, is positive, then um, there's also these other 22 additive weighted classification criteria that can be considered at that point. And if patients that have one clinical criterion, which we'll kind of talk through, and 10 or more points that you can add up based on the other additive criteria that it will go through, um, that would be classified as them having SLA. So they have to have at least one clinical criterion and then 10 or more points uh, as having SLA. Right. So some of the uh, the clinical domains criteria, um, you know, Cole's already kind of mentioned these, but, you know, if the patient has um, – any sort of the constitutional, you know, fever, um, the hematological signs like leukopenia or thrombocytopenia, um, the neuropsychiatric delirium, psychosis, seizure. Um, if there's the um, mouth ulcers or, or subacute cutaneous discoid lupus, something like that, um, you know, the pleural or pericardial effusions, acute pericarditis, you know, if you notice joint involvement, any kind of renal involvement like proteinuria, um, or if a kidney biopsy is done and you find out the person does have lupus nephritis, um, each one of those things is correlated with a point um, or, a po- or a set of points, and then you add them all up at the end. And uh, so, for example, like with renal, if the patient has proteinuria greater than 0.5 grams per 24 hour, that's four points. But if they have a kidney biopsy, class two or uh, five, lupus nephritis, then they get eight points. Kidney biopsy, class three or four, lupus nephritis is 10. So just in each one of those has is broken down into various points. Um, but the, the other thing to keep in mind when you're going through this is that the criterion, each one of them, that, you know, especially if you're trying to count one, towards the diagnosis of lupus, it needs to be something that can't be explained by something that is more common than, than lupus. So I, maybe that's the, to house's point. Maybe uh, that's what he's getting at. Yeah. Nobody but, meets um, the criteria because it's always explained by something different. Exactly. So uh, a occurrence of, of a criterion on at least one occasion is sufficient to, for the diagnosis. And if they've had or experienced multiple criterion, then Basically, they don't have to have happened simultaneously. Even if they've experienced, it still counts as more than one. And then um, within each domain, only the the highest weighted criterion is counted towards the total score. So, like, for example, if you have a kidney biopsy done and you have class 3 and 4 lupus nephritis and proteinuria, you're not getting 4 points and 10 points. You get just the 10 points for that particular one. Right. To, right. To, which all you need is 10 points total. So, um I I don't know, I hope that makes a little bit of sense unless you're kind of seeing it and I'll uh 
I'll even throw it up on my screen real quick for those of you who are watching the video version. But um, if you want to take a pause on that. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a good tool to kind of keep things straight when you're going through all the different different things that can go wrong or be affected by lupus. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that one from 2019, there are a couple of others from the, that are older that are still kind of in use, even one from 1999. I think there was one around 2010, 2012 range too. And all of it is, is really just uh, guidelines because even none of the, the three primary ones that are used um, address every single thing. There are still some other pieces that could be, um, useful in determining if somebody has lupus and sometimes the diagnosis is on kind of a spectrum like it's like all right we're saying this guy has maybe lupus probable lupus kind of deal or this individual has definite lupus um, so it's it's sometimes difficult to distinguish um, yeah. lab studies can be helpful um, so some of the standard workup that you're going to do if you have a concern for lupus are um, a cbc with differential um, getting serum creatinine studies, urinalysis with microscopy, with the CBC, we're screening for leukopenia, lymphopenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia. With the urinalysis and creatinine studies, we want to check for kidney disease. Do they have decreased renal function? Um, is there are they spilling protein? Are we concerned that the lupus is affecting their um, kidneys? Because if the if lupus is affecting an organ system acutely, um, then the treatment is going to be much more. Uh, I, I guess aggressive than if it's more of a mild case. Other lab tests that can be helpful, urethrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR, and C-reactive protein, CRP. Um, so with lupus, they are a little less uh, specific than with some other inflammatory conditions. Um, with other inflammatory conditions, they can be really helpful to say that somebody has acute uh, inflammation and, um, you know, it, it, to, to kind of grade the severity of their um, current inflammation or their current flare, that sort of thing. With lupus, sometimes they are um, elevated in, in a different way or consistently elevated um, or uh, not equally elevated. For instance, the level of ESR elevation may show a discrepancy relative to a normal CRP level. Um, during a flare. So if both my bio, or if both markers are markedly elevated, you might suspect the presence of an infectious process. So it's not as useful, but it's still definitely part of the normal workup. Also, complement yeah. levels, liver function tests, um, creatinine kinase assay, and a, a spot protein spot creatinine ratio. So a number of things that, that you would work up initially. Um, and if you're considering any of the biologic medications, then you'd want to get a TB screen, um, and, um, in those instances too, you would want to, um, screen for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, that sort of thing. Cause those can, um, reactivate that. Yeah. And as far as like going through the, the auto antibody tests, um, you know, you get this panel of these rheumatoid labs, uh, there's going to be a lot of different, different results on there. And, and you're going to probably get one of these panels for any type of rheumatoid condition that you're looking at. But um, in the case of lupus, we'll kind of go through some of these and see which ones are, are more helpful and, um, you know, as far as the diagnosis and whatnot, and which ones are you know, not as helpful. But um, for example, like the ANA um, screening test is, is, you know, sensitivity 95%, but like we said earlier, it's not diagnostic. You need the clinical features along with it. Um, the uh, anti-double-stranded um, DNA 
has a very high specificity for uh, lupus, but the sensitivity is only about 70%. Um, it, so the, the level is kind of variable to be based on the disease activity. Um, the anti-SM is, is most specific antibody for lupus. Um, unfortunately, it's only 30 to 40% sensitivity. Um, there's anti-SSA or anti-SSB. Um, so for example, those are only present in about 15% of patients with SLE and, and other con connective tissue diseases. Um, anti-ribosomal uh, P, um, so it's uncommon antibodies that may be correlated with like CNS disease, things like that. Um, there is like an anti-cardiolipin is another one you may see, um, it's basically looking for someone who has like antiphospholipid antibody syndrome that's you know you know associated with lupus. Um, there's also lupus anticoagulant, there's, which can be done by multiple tests, in, including one called the direct Russell's Viper venom test. Hmm. I don't know what that is, but I, I, Russell Vipers have <laughs> like like they cause their vent like the blood to coagulate. So I'm thinking that maybe they. Are testing that to see if there's an inhibition of like the clotting cascade or something. I don't know, but um, that's what it sounds like. I need to look into that though. That's pretty cool. And uh, sorry if you guys don't know, I like snakes. And um, the drug-induced lupus NA antibodies um, is an antihistone is another one. And uh, those uh, drug-induced lupus ANA antibodies are often of that type. If it was going to be something like hydralazine or something that uh, procainamide or something that caused the lupus from a, a drug standpoint but those are just some i don't know if any of you have seen that panel have you seen those panels cole you, those rheumatoid panels some of them now that you're definitely working the uh, anti-nuclear antibody with lupus specifically is a big deal because 95 percent of patients who have lupus are going to have a positive ana so if you yeah. if you order an ana um and it comes back positive, then you likely have lupus. Only 5% of individuals have lupus with a negative ANA. And it has its yeah. own specific diagnostic criteria, like non-ANA positive SLE or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Not diagnostic criteria, but um, what's the they're like, it would be classified as something different. Code. Uh, uh, ICD-10. Yeah, ICD-10, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as far as grading the uh, disease severity... There's a number of little tools out there. One that's used is the um, Lupus Disease Activity Score, S-L-E-D-A-S. -S. Um, I've also seen it called the Disease Activity Index Calculator. Um, you can find basically a version of it on MDCalc, and it uh, assesses a number of kind of the different signs and symptoms we've been mentioning, arthritis, leukopenia, vasculitis, proteinuria. Um, you plug it in, and it gives you a, a score, and it kind of it can be used to... to um, show if somebody has high severity, moderate severity, low severity, and you can track it over time to see if a patient's improving or to maybe even evaluate if you feel like they're having a flare uh, because flares are kind of subjective um, and it's it's not well-defined what a flare means, but for the most part, it's um, a uh, increase in symptoms over a period of time that requires like intervention. Um, so the um, European League Against Rheumatism, the group that we were talking about with a lot of the diagnostic criteria, um, defines some treatment goals for lupus and kind of incorporates the disease activity scores. Um, but one is one goal is complete remission, which um, remission of lupus is very uncommon. It's very uncommon for them to um, have symptoms resolve for a long period of time and not have not uh, regress or have a flare or come back. 
Um, that's very unusual. So a lot of times it's it's going to be lifelong. Maybe best case is that it is um, uh, managed with the least amount of medication possible. And when the symptoms do arise, they are relatively mild. And then there's not any severe um, organ dysfunction. But, you know, complete remission is a great goal. And they would define it as absence of clinical activity with no use of glucocorticoids or immunosuppressive drugs. Um, so uh, if, if our goal was low disease activity, they divide that in some different ways. Um, so a disease activity index score of less than three with anti-malarial therapy, which I think that they just mean Plaquenil when they say that. Yeah. Um, or a disease activity index of less than four without it. Uh, or a physician's global assessment of less than one, um, which is uh, another type of assessment that kind of looks at the patient holistically and how they're responding to therapy. Um, with glucocorticoids at less than 7.5 milligrams of prednisone equivalent um, and well-tolerated immunosuppressive agents. So basically they're just saying low disease activity is they're scoring low on, on these assessments and they are not having to have an excessive burden of medication. Uh, they also look at renal um, uh, response rates because that is a significant um, cause for mortality long-term is uh, kidney insufficiency and lupus nephritis and that sort of thing. Um, so they define partial renal remission as reduction in proteinuria by 50% to subnephrotic levels and serum creatinine within 10% from baseline by 6 to 12 months. And then they say complete renal remission is proteinuria less than 500 milligrams per 24 hours and serum creatinine within 10% of baseline. So just some, some goals to shoot for in terms, of, uh, in terms of where you want your patients to get to. Yep. And uh, before we jump into some of the treatment options, we'll take a quick pause to give you the password. So make sure when you go to freece.com's website, if you're an unlimited member, um, click on this episode in the learning section under podcast, and then the password will be SLE24. SLE is all capital and 24. And you'll have access to the 10-question multiple-choice post-activity test. Nice. So, first time we've gotten used 24 for the I password. Know. I know. We went, yeah. I was like, I almost went with just straight, you know, the word lupus, so I wouldn't use the date anymore, but I was like, no, nah, we got to have one. It's, it's the new year already. Somehow I think that won't be the only one. Also, I know no, that everybody, everybody who gets older says this, but it does feel like last year just flew by. Like, I feel like we were riding 22 for a while, and we just totally skipped over 23. Yeah. No, it, it, it definitely went by fast. But I think that might have been the newborns and stuff in the house that we were dealing with. <laughs> Make yeah. that time go by a little quicker. Yeah, it does do that. Yeah. So uh, speaking of the early 2020s, <laughs> uh, our first treatment option that we'll talk about today is is <laughs> one that is kind of the the hallmark of lupus treatment, the kind of the backbone of treatment if, if it can be tolerated. And it was in the news with all the, the stuff going on with COVID way back in the beginning, our friend hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil. Um, and that was one of the big arguments against people using hydroxychloroquine prophylactically for COVID was the fact that it ended up being on back order for a little bit for patients who did have like lupus and other rheumatoid conditions and they couldn't get their medications. So that wasn't great. But I remember it being um, on back order, but you know, the funny thing is, cause it definitely was on back order and you know why it's not because Plaquenil was used that much for COVID. It was used some, but not enough mm -hmm. to where it would put it on a true back order. But when 
things started to get a little scary, I would do this myself. You got to look out for your own patients, right? So mm-hmm. the pharmacy just start it. ordering it all, and uh, and I mean, I was guilty of that with various different things when they go on back order. You know, anytime something's at risk of going back on back order, you just try to get ten bottles in so you have it. You know, and I'm sure that's why there was a, a supply issue of that for a while. But we, I remember, we had limitations. We had uh, only dispense thirty day supplies um, to these patients who were on it. You know, consistently and. Anytime that a prescription came through for it, we had to like do an override to say that it was for XYZ or something. And yeah, I remember it was, it was significant. We had a lot of physicians that were writing it for themselves to like stockpile it. And, uh, <laughs> I, I say we, I, 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 I say we, I, I, I remember some friends of mine that still worked in retail at the time that were telling me, uh, some, so I, I've heard it, I heard at least four or five stories of doctors that were like, what do you mean? I can't write this for my, it'd be like a 900 pills or some ridiculous. Interesting. It's like, Dude, you don't need all this. Yeah, we had There's legit limitations. Just... We would have been like, sorry, bro. We No, we, yeah. we can only dispense 30. And actually, if it wasn't for one of these you know, conditions, like if it was a COVID diagnosis, I think it was a max of 7 or 14 days or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so hydroxychloroquine. And uh, mechanistically, we're a little unsure as far as how it actually elicits its anti-rheumatological you know, mechanism. And so... Uh, it's the mechanism is not exactly known, but it is used in a wide you know range of, of rheumatoid conditions. The dosing when it comes to SLA typically is 200 milligrams up to 400 milligrams a day. Um, once you get up to 400 milligrams, usually two, twice a day is a little bit better tolerated. Adverse effect wise, it's not nearly as um, robust as far as the warnings and all that it's, it, is some of the other DMARDs that you'd run into. Um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, so, you know, the GI issues, abdominal pain, all those things are, are fairly common with hydroxychloroquine. Um, there are certain things to watch out for, like, um, for instance, it can cause severe and even in some cases like life-threatening hypoglycemia. Um, in patients that ha- have anti-diabetic medications as well as patients who do not have those on their you know, as part of the regimen. Um, there's also a potential that it can cause some QT prolongation. And so if you have a patient that has a history of, of a prolonged QT interval or, or, you know, any kind of other risks, um, like low magnesium or anything like that, would put them at risk for torsades, you would probably want to use some caution there. And um, as far as interactions, there's, there's some, but really the one that's probably the most common you'd run into um, is antacids. And so making sure that the patients are separating their antacids from their hydroxychloroquine by about four hours is usually enough to um, overcome that interaction as far as the absorption. Yep. Uh, monitoring. Um, you know, lots of things to kind of look at as far as the baseline, but then not a ton to do long-term. Um, well, I shouldn't say long-term, but not a ton to do like on a – every couple month basis or anything, but CBC, uh, look, you know, basically looking for any, um, signs of, of myelosuppression at baseline. And then also obviously periodically while the patient's on therapy, you'd want to monitor for that, uh, renal function periodically and, um, a baseline ocular exam. And, you know, patients can get this within the first year of starting, um, they would want to obtain a baseline ocular exam that includes a corrected distance visual acuity test and automated threshold visual field um, and uh, a spectral domain ocular coherence tomography, a D- SDOCT. Um, our ophthalmology or ophthalmology listeners will have to share uh, what, what those are because that's not, not our cup of tea. Hmm. But um, the reason why these eye tests are done is because that um, – 
hydroxychloroquine can put you at risk um, for retinal damage. And so patients that are at higher risk, um, they, you know, again, we said we start the testing basically that within the first year of them being on the medication, um, and then they would include annual examinations after that if they're high risk already for retinal damage. If they do not have any kind of significant risk factors, um, then an annual retinal exam usually can be deferred until they've been on treatment for five years, and then they can start those annual those annual uh, tests. But I've definitely seen a few patients that had to start um, hydroxychloroquine because they were starting to have their field of vision affected and things like that. Yeah, I've seen so it definitely too. something to watch out for. I've seen it too. So as long as you're, you know, following up and monitoring, it's fine. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I, and I should have mentioned too, like we're going to go through these medications kind of just to touch on the ones that are often used in in uh, lupus, but then we'll go back through and, and kind of lay them out and talk about the order and all that stuff. So right. if, if, we, if we just jumped into these and you're just flying through the individual meds, bear with us. We'll, we'll come back to it. We'll, yes. we'll circle back we'll as they say. Back. Man, that's like circling back is like giving you five minutes back in your day, you know? Like, okay, we're ending the meeting. I'm going to give you guys five minutes back in your day. Now, like, that's yeah. one of those things. Cir- circle back is just like, oh, cool. We're not going to settle this this meeting. We're circling yeah. back to it again. I Great. can't wait. We have to have another meeting. <laughs> but at least you gave me five minutes back in my day. Yeah, um, exactly. So another common DMARD is methotrexate. It's a folate antimetabolite that inhibits DNA synthesis, repair, cellular replication, and inhibits dihydrofolate reductase. Um, we're familiar with it. comes in a, a few dosage forms. It's oral, um, given as 7.5 up to 30 milligrams once a week. Um, for rheumatoid conditions, I feel like I usually see it maxed at about 25 milligrams a week, um, but it's also sub-Q and intramuscular. Um, can definitely cause liver damage, so it has a U.S. box warning for hepatotoxicity, also myelosuppression and mucositis. Um, don't use it in pregnancy. It's category X. And then can also have some GI-type um, symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, and you want to monitor the LFTs because it can affect those. can also cause hair loss and um, photosensitivity as well, which is not great for um, patients with lupus. And in general, you'd want to avoid medications that are going to cause photosensitivity. This, of course, um, is used to treat it. So you want to check LFTs at baseline every two to four weeks for the first three months or after you have a dose increase, and then you can go to less frequent every eight to 12 weeks for three to six months and then less frequent after that. Um, Also, kind of like I mentioned earlier, screen for hep B and hep C uh, before using this. I think less so because of a reactivation, more so because of the uh, liver damage. Um, Interestingly, uh, a liver biopsy is recommended before beginning methotrexate therapy only for patients with a history of excessive alcohol use um, or if they have ongoing hep B or hep C infections or recurring elevations of aspartate, uh, elevations in LFTs. Um, I haven't seen anybody have a biopsy before starting it. Maybe yeah. more commonly, they would just be avoided, I think. Um, but if you were going to do it in that instance, then they recommend a biopsy. Yeah, oh. I feel like methotrexate isn't one that you see too often in lupus. Anyway, I mean it's it's every once in a while, but I feel like just because of the monitoring the liver issues and stuff, it, at least in my experience, I haven't seen too many people. What about you? I Have, see, you it, see a lot of people on it. I see it, but not as much as the other rheumatology conditions for sure. Um, yeah, cool. Um, but you do need. Sorry, to give, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's fine. Uh, you do need to give folate um, while you're taking it because it's a it's a antifolate drug, and that'll decrease hematological issues, GI issues, hepatic adverse effects, um, and you can give the folate 
uh, once weekly as well, five milligrams once a week the day after doing methotrexate. You could also do one milligram a day on non-methotrexate days. Um, the one milligram tablet is only available as a prescription of note. Yeah. And uh, the thiopurines, um, specifically azathioprine, is probably used more uh, more often. Um, it's given as a, uh, it, it's an immunosuppressive agent. Um, and so because of that, it does carry a box warning for chronic immunosuppression and, and increased risk of infection, as well as increased risk of malignancy. Um, we do know that, you know, we need to monitor for, for myeloid suppression and in signs of, of immunosuppression, looking at the hematological, you know, to- or signs of hematological toxicity. Also, there is a genetic test that ideally should should be done um, because there is there are there are patients that have a genetic deficiency of an enzyme called thiopurine methyltransferase, and uh, that TPMT is what they abbreviate it as. But the testing should be um, considered before initial use of azathioprine as, as well as um, six mercaptopurine, uh, just to make sure that the medication is going to be effective. That's one that I, I haven't personally worked with enough patients that are just now starting azathioprine, but I think I've only seen that. Um, TPMT testing done maybe in like a couple patients really max. Do you, have you do you see it at all? I have not seen it. Mm-mm. No, yeah. Um, azathioprine. Other than that, you know, adverse effects: nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, can cause uh, some issues with rash on the skin, increased LFTs, and of note, there is a uh, renal dose adjustment that starts when the creatinine clearance falls below fifty. And um, azathioprine is considered to be something that's not necessarily safe in pregnancy, but uh, has been studied enough to where um, azathioprine is uh, recommended over mercaptopurine during pregnancy, and it's just something that if the patient is established on that during pregnancy, you wouldn't necessarily have to stop it, uh, but it would depend on the situation. Right. Uh, Then there's cyclophosphamide, um, which is an alkylating agent, kind of a number of um, side effects to be aware of. It has a box warning for myelosuppression but also hemorrhagic cystitis, which is caused by a metabolite that it produces called acrolein um, that can concentrate in the bladder and cause hemorrhagic cystitis. Um, So one recommendation you need to make is to ensure that the patients stay well hydrated. Um, If it's a concern or becomes a problem, there is something called mesna, a drug called mesna that's a chemoprotectant that can be given prophylactically with high doses of cyclophosphamide to prevent the issue. Other warnings to be aware of, SIADH, mucositis, neurotoxicity, nausea, vomiting. Um, Cyclophosphamide is usually considered in kind of more severe lupus when there's um, organ-threatening disease, um, like renal, cardiopulmonary, neuropsychiatric. That's kind of reserved for those times. Um, It's a rescue therapy in patients with non-major organ manifestations uh, who are refractory to, to other agents. Because of its gonadotoxic effects, um, it needs to be used um, with caution in women, which we know most a lot of patients with lupus are women, and men who are of fertile age. Um, concomitant use of um, gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs is recommended in premenopausal patients, interestingly. Yep. And next up, we have the belimumab. My gosh, just nice. butchered that. <laughs> just butchered that so bad. Nice. <laughs> 
Belly Mimimab, <laughs> ben, ben Lista. I'm just going to call it Ben Lista and not even try that anymore. Um, it's a IgG1 lambda monoclonal antibody, and it's, it can be given either sub-Q injections weekly or as an IV infusion that uh, initially has like a loading dose period, and then um, every four weeks is the maintenance infusion. Um, some warnings associated with uh, this medication, we know that it causes an increased risk of infection and it can cause an increased risk of PML. Um, it also has been associated with acute hypersensitivity reactions um, as well as increased risk of malignancy, psychiatric events. Um, some other more common adverse effects, the GI issues, fever, um, depression, including suicidal ideation, and uh, insomnia have all been reported with this medication. And it's definitely not like a first-line agent or anything, but it's something that could be considered in patients who have extra renal disease that is inadequately controlled by normal first-line agents. Um, it also has been shown, at least in some small studies, to have a, a potential benefit of... Um, towards fatigue specifically. Uh, so that's another potential option. Once they're, once they're on standards of care, then this could be an add-on therapy. Yeah, this is the specialty medication that I work a little more closely with. And yeah, I definitely see it after they've kind of moved on from the mild-moderate disease place or they were refractory to the first-line stuff. Interestingly, um, it's usually uh, 200 milligrams that you inject once a week if you're using the sub-Q version. But if a patient has um, lupus nephritis, it has a specific indication for a loading dose there. So you would do 400 milligrams once a week for four weeks and then go to the 200 milligram dose. An example of how you're a little more aggressive when it has the um, organ involvement. So there's another drug yeah. um, that is IV um, called safnello anafrolumab, another monoclonal antibody. So it's it's not going to be one that the patient is self-administering. It's only infusion. Um so it's an interferon receptor antagonist type 1. Um, it has some warnings for increased risk of infection because of the um, immunosuppression, but also malignancy, um, possible hypersensitivity reactions. Um, it seems to have a particular benefit in patients with skin and joint involvement. Um, but yeah, one that's, that's maybe reserved one line after um, Binlista. Yeah. And we also have our old buddy rituximab. So mechanistically, this is working to deplete the CD20 B cells, and it does carry a box warning uh, for infusion-related and mucocutaneous reactions, as well as Hep B reactivation and PML risk. It's typically given as a, a two infusion series, um, two weeks apart or 15 days apart. And oftentimes, because of the um, potential infusion reactions, they, they will give a methylprednisolone dose, sometimes as high as 100 milligrams, 30 minutes prior to the rituximab. Um, and hopefully that will at least reduce the risk of them having a, or severity rather, of, of the infusion reaction if they do have one. Um, the duration of benefit does tend to be a little bit variable as far as the, you know, the course of the rituximab, and, and patients may end up needing to have uh, another round of rituximab, especially you, you're very familiar with this with like rheumatoid um, arthritis, things like that, where you'll see patients that, you know, will go in for another treatment. Um, same kind of thing with SLA. Off-label use, um, obviously in lupus, but um, it is considered in patients that have severe renal um, as well as uh, extra renal, like the mainly hematological and neuropsychiatric, um, you know, symptoms that are refractory to patients that are already on other agents, you know, the first-line agents. Right. So. Uh, the last one we'll touch on is another antineoplastic agent, 
Darzalex Daratumumab, uh, but it's an anti-CD38 monoclonal, anti- monoclonal antibody. Um, there was a study from last year, I suppose, 2023. Way back when. Yeah, way back when for um, lupus nephritis resistant to standard therapy. Um, six patients, a case series, who received it over 12 months. All patients had lupus nephritis resistant to mycophenolate and or cyclophosphamide-based regimens, as well as other therapies like rituximab and binlista. Um, five patients had an improvement in mean proteinuria, mean serum creatinine, and a systemic lupus um, disease activity index that we referenced earlier, and one patient had no response after six months of therapy and discontinued. So um, probably a reserved option for lupus nephritis, it seems. And we didn't mention mycophenolate, but sometimes that's something that's used um, as well in, in kind of the uh, lupus nephritis situations. Yeah, this is uh, one still, you know, standards of care is, or the first line therapies are ideally there to kind of touch on loop, the systemic lupus, but also the other, you know, comorbidities that are associated with it or the subcategories that are associated with it. And this case, you know, if the patient's already on standard therapy and then the nephrit- lupus nephritis is what's, you know, the biggest problem, that's when you can add this on potentially. Gotcha. But yeah, it, um, it looks like they had to have tried in the study. They had to have tried like every other option. This was kind of like a last ditch effort. So, yep. um, be interesting to see if they get it FDA approved or if they even go for FDA approval. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so let's summarize some of this. So, patients um, who are diagnosed with lupus, all of them, if they can tolerate it, ideally would be on hydroxychloroquine, and you know, those may vary depending on severity and whatnot, but. Um, Keep in mind, and I don't think we mentioned this with hydroxychloroquine, but it does take, for a lot of patients, about three months to really take effect. And so during that time, um, you may end up having to put the patient on a glucocorticoid um, orally, and that can obviously provide that rapid, rapid symptom relief. And uh, over time, you know, especially long-term, we would want to minimize the daily exposure to steroids. So 7.5 milligrams or less of prednisone or a prednisone equivalent um, per day would be like the absolute max. And ideally we want to discontinue the, the steroids if once the person's stabilized. Um, subsequent initiation of immunosuppressive drugs also can help facilitate a more rapid uh, tapering of the, the steroids. It also can help to prevent disease flares. And as far as like the choice of those agents, it's going to depend on some of the different disease manifestations and, uh, you know, the age, childbearing potential, safety concerns, all that stuff, cost. Um, so it's going to be more patient-specific at that point. Right. And some of those considerations are um, methotrexate and azathioprine can be used in patients with poor symptom control from glucocorticoids and Plaquenil, um, or when um, Plaquenil alone is unlikely to be sufficient. And just like any other condition, we, we want to do our best to limit the use of glucocorticoids because of long-term complications. But of course, a lot of the, these other DMARTs and things have issues as well, but definitely limiting um, or decreasing the glucocorticoid burden is important. Um, so mycophenolate, mofetil, like I mentioned before, potent immunosuppressant um, that has efficacy in renal and non-renal lupus, um, interestingly, does not have proven efficacy in neuropsychiatric lupus. Um, but because of its teratogenic effect, its higher cost, it really limits its use in women of, reproduct- of reproductive age. So they usually limit it um, to renal manifestations and, and don't really use it outside of that. Cyclophosphamide, like I mentioned before, can be considered an organ-threatening disease, um, renal, cardiopulmonary, neuropsychiatric 
um, or as rescue therapy in patients with non-major organ manifestations who are refractory to other agents. Um, but but yeah, and I mentioned it's going to have a toxic effect, so you have to be cautious in yeah. women and men of fertile age and that sort of thing. Um, as far as skin disease manifestations, obviously the hydroxychloroquine um, and sometimes glucocorticoids, especially if the skin disease is the only way it's manifesting, then you probably would start off with a topical glucocorticoid or even a calcium inhibitor topically along with the oral hydroxychloroquine. Uh, but if it's that doesn't take care of it or if they're still having like really severe skin involvement, then they may end up having to include steroids along with it. The neuropsychiatric disease, obviously steroids, um, as well as immunosuppressive agents, uh, it, assuming that the underlying pathophysiology, you know, that's causing it is is presumed to be inflammatory and it's not a, you know, actual psychiatric disease the patient has. Um, if any antiphospholipid antibodies are present, um, considering anticoagulant, antithrombotic treatment is favored, um, and if the mechanism is uncertain or both mechanisms appear co to coexist, combined immunosuppressive therapy and anticoagulant, antithrombotic therapy may be considered. Sometimes patients have pretty severe or significant thrombocytopenia associated with lupus. Um, might be defined as a platelet count less than 30,000. Um, so how do we treat that? Moderate to high doses of glucocorticoids along with a steroid-sparing immunosuppressive like azathioprine or mycophenolate. Also cyclosporin, which would be the one with the least potential for myelotoxicity. Um, they encourage IV methylprednisolone, um, pulses of IV methylprednisolone for one to three days um, to help with it. Um, also, intravenous IVIG could be considered in the acute phase of the thrombocytopenia. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess to, to kind of go back real quick and summarize, you know, you have a diagnosis of lupus depending on the severity and, you know, what kind of clinical manifestations the disease has, starting them off with hydroxychloroquine and if this if it's more severe, probably steroids at the same time and tapering over you know over the course of the you know the three months that it takes to to become active, they may at that point you know wait a couple months to see if it improves. If it's bad enough, you may end up starting one of the immunosuppressive agents along with that. Um, but you can end up going to an immunosuppressive agent, and then um, if that's not you know, if there's still some residual symptoms or clinical manifestations that are left over, um, depending on what those are, would dictate which direction you go with some of these add-on therapies, these these monoclonal antibodies or biologics. Is that about sum it up? You think, Cole, for the the, the basic overview of lupus? It makes you, perfect. Did that make sense? sense to me. My little summary. Yes. So Actually, as I started that, I was like, I really should have written this out. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. But. uh um, yeah, anything else with, with that? I know, obviously, with time, we can't get too much more, but anything else we want need to mention? Yeah, just to say that there's various little uh, kind of management strategies for each of the um, complications. So we highlighted lupus nephritis the most, but there are various other ones to, to look into. So who knows? Maybe we'll do a quick episode on one someday on one of the other smaller things. Yeah, we should. We, we should find a rheumatologist that wants to come on and have them talk about it too. That would be, be a good idea. That would be that would be ideal. <laughs> but that we can really get talking depth. about it. That's for sure. That's very true. And then we end up on Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if, uh, if, if that's about all we got for that, so make sure you go get your credit if you're a free CE member. If not, go check them out. They've been uh, a, a great partner to work with for. Let's, this is like going on three years, isn't it? Like, are starting year three? I think yeah, with them. If, if Twenty. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. 
I think we got like 60 something episodes on there now and uh or it's that I guess some of them are going to start falling off now because of the expiration dates but um regardless they've they've been great to work with so definitely check them out and uh if you guys want more structured podcasts in more, you know, like lecture style, you know, I call it my, the boring, you know, old school lectures, then uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash core consult RX. Basically you pay a very small fee. It's like $3 a month or $30 for a year. And you get access to all the lectures and download. You can download the PowerPoint slides that go along with those video lectures. Uh, there's like a hundred different lectures on there now. And if you do sign up for an annual membership, the $30 isn't some change for the whole year. You will also get a copy, a, a digital copy of high powered medicine that was written by Dr. Alex Poppin, the landmark clinical trials review book. It's got over 150 landmark clinical trials with great summaries. It's a very good book, useful reference. So you'll get that as well. Thank you to him for sponsoring and thank you for free CE. Thank you to you guys for listening and putting up with us and we'll see you guys on the next one. Have a good night.